Well, it, it seems like I've reached the magical age where my doctor loves to see me. <laughs> A couple of years ago, I needed to have some medication refilled, and so I contacted the doctor's office, and they said, uh, when was the last time you were here? And so we kind of got all that straight, and they said, well, you need to come in. He's not going to refill that uh, medication until you come in. And so I went in for a checkup. You know what a checkup means? It means, first of all, you're going to spend some money. And secondly, you're going to spend some time. And thirdly, ideally, you walk away and the doctor says, everything's fine. How long is Don't answer out loud, okay? Don't, please don't. Uh, how long has it been since you had a spiritual checkup? And how would you even go about doing that? How would you have some kind of a checkup that helps you in your spiritual life know that you are on track and on point as to your spiritual health? Take a Bible and go with me to James chapter 3. Now, I had somebody catch me a week or so ago, a little over a week ago, and say to me, I don't like you preaching out of the book of James. I think the way she said it was, I don't like James. And uh, so if that's you today, then just suffer through this sermon, and you won't have to do it again until probably sometime later in the fall, okay, because we're going to jump off of this. Next week we have Lord's Supper as part of that special service. I hope you'll plan on being here. So I won't be in the book of James next Sunday. And then for the month of August, we're going to do a discipleship emphasis that is designed to help you and as personally help you, but also as a family unit to do some disciple work, discipleship work together. So we'll explain more about that as we move forward. But for today, what I want us to do is come back to this idea of, out of James chapter 3, this idea of having a spiritual checkup. I told you that I was in McAllen uh, last Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday was the annual convention. And uh, what they do at those annual, con if, if you love business meetings, then you would love the annual meeting of Texas Baptist. Three days, two and a half days, really, of meeting to talk about how we're doing. It is a denominational spiritual checkup. And I can tell you from the vantage point uh, of one who's involved in that at some level, but also just as an individual pastor there as a messenger, that the state of the Baptist General Convention of Texas is healthy. Now, we have some work to do, but we're doing pretty well. I think our checkup showed that we have some places that were really strong, some places that are not so strong. But in the process of all of that, I, I, I want you to know that the monies that we spend and send to Texas Baptist Life uh, is money that is well invested in the kingdom of God. Now, that being said... I want us to come a little bit to the question and say, oh, so if you're going to declare something spiritually healthy, what does that look like? What are the criteria that we should use to try to figure out exactly how healthy we are? So historically speaking, we fall into this trap at those kind of conventions usually, but historically speaking, we go to financial data. How are we doing 
in the money side of life. In other words, so when I first started in the world of Baptist ministry, some 40 plus years ago now, I heard these comments as I went to college at a Texas Baptist institution. I grew up in Texas Baptist churches. I heard these comments that if we really want to check the health of a church or denomination, we measure three things and all of them begins, uh, begin with the letter B. The first thing we measure typically is, how are we doing on buildings? Now, we're about to bring the budgeting process of our church down to a close. Over the next month, uh, by this time next month, we will be voting on the proposed budget for the new church year that starts in September. And if you'll look at that, you will find that the, the buildings that we have require significant funding just to keep them running and in good shape. And so some would say, matter of fact, I've heard this from people, even in McAllen while we were there for a handful of weeks and went to my son's church, we'll talk about that in a moment, but as we did that, some people there in McAllen say, oh, I know, I know El Paso. That is a beautiful church. And in my head, I wanted to say, now you're talking about the people or the building, I, I agree with you, whichever one you're talking about, but which one are you talking about? And then they would usually reveal themselves. I got to go in there, and it's such a beautiful church inside. The buildings are large, and you have so, so, such a great church. They were saying something that reflected one big part of Baptist life, and that is that our buildings are the things that we look at. Is that an adequate measure of health for a church? or for individuals. Others would say it's not the building, it's the budget, the bucks part of it. Are we, are we healthy there? I say yes. Could we do better? Probably. But is that the measure that we really want to go to? And if so, what is that magical budget limit that makes a church successful as opposed to not successful? See, these are kind of relative things that we have historically used, buildings, budgets, and then baptisms. So we measure sometimes the success of a church by the number of baptisms. And so we could look at ours, and I think, I didn't go back and check this. I've been on vacation. I didn't go back and check this, but I think that we're improving in baptisms year to year since COVID. Does that make us healthy? If you think it makes us real healthy, let me take you back to our son's church where he preached last week, and they do baptisms immediately after the service. And there was one lady who came down during the invitation, and one song after the invitation, she got baptized. The pastor said as he was closing, it was the 197th day of 2023. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'll, I'll trust his math. On the 197th day of 2023, the three baptisms we witnessed that day represented up to their 200th baptism since January. Now, does that make them a healthy church? Well, it's probably a little closer than measuring buildings. 
So let me say it this way. Maybe what we should look at is not the, the, the financial criteria, the buildings, budgets, etc. And, and maybe we should not also look at the activity level of a church. Do you know how busy this church is? All the something going on all the time. Does that mean we're healthy? If you say that activity is the criteria for health, then you've never cooked frog legs. Because when you fry frog legs, by the way, you take the legs off of the frog, right? So humanely, you need to kill the frog first, take the legs off, and then put them in a frying pan. You know that those frog legs will jump all over that stove, even though the frog is long gone. I know churches that are super busy and super dead. How do we measure health? How do we have a spiritual checkup? Maybe we should look to productivity. Matthew chapter 28, you don't have time to turn there. You'll know the verse anyway. Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20 say this. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now we're getting somewhere when it comes to measuring the health of a church. What is the spiritual productivity of that church? Let me make this a lot more difficult for you. Let's take it off of the church and let's drop it into your lap. How would you measure your own spiritual health? Productivity based on the Great Commission means that we must come to the point of understanding and embracing Jesus' standard, which is that final word to his disciples before he went home to be with the Lord and with God in heaven. He said, go make disciples. Baptizing them, so that's where we pull the baptizing thing in, But I can tell you from 40-plus years, four decades, in my fifth decade now, that means I'm old. But working into my fifth decade as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I have seen countless hundreds, thousands maybe, of people who were baptized and never became disciples. If we want to measure our spiritual health as individuals, We should look at the productivity based on the Great Commission. I'm going to come back to that as we close. I've been off a week. I've got a lot to say, so settle in. Let's see what else we might find. James now gives us a framework for our checkup. Let me say that again. James in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, gives us a framework for the checkup that we need to have for ourselves. So I read from verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Ah, now James goes to meddling again. If you didn't like him before, you're not going to like this. When it comes to spiritual health, what do we look for? Let's start off by looking at the structure of these verses. James constructs this like a sandwich. Okay, I I know that we're halfway between breakfast and lunch now, so think of a sandwich, but keep it in Scripture for a little bit because you got a couple of hours before you can go eat. What are the basic requirements of a sandwich? You have to have two ends and a middle, right? Now, you know, I know people that eat some weird stuff. I, I came, before we came out here, we were serving in East Texas, far East Texas, almost to Louisiana. Many of the members of our church were from Cajun country in Louisiana. Let me tell you something. They eat some weird stuff and call it a sandwich. So let me just make it simple, you know, because my favorite sandwich of all is a BBLT or a BLT. Let's just call it one. I like double bacon. So BLT is bacon, lettuce, Tomato, thank you. I just like to make sure you're with me every once in a while. So two sides and a middle. The outside pieces are the bread in this case, and the sandwich that he gives us are verse 13 first, and then verses 17 and 18. So let me give you both of those, and you'll see how they essentially are saying the same thing. But on the back end of it, that piece of bread, that part of the sandwich, elaborates a little bit on the first part. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, we're going to have to explain a little bit of that. But that's the concept. That's the principle that he's laying out here. Remember, the whole series that we're in is taken from chapter 2, and we call this dead or alive. Because in James's gospel, he says in no uncertain terms, your faith has to work. It has to be workable, and it has to be at work in your daily life. What you say you believe has to be born out in the way you live. That's part of what he's saying in verse 13 as it relates to wisdom and understanding by his good works, uh, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And then verses 17 and 18 are the backside. And that says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So just by process of elimination... If those two bookends or sandwich ends are the bread part of a sandwich, then what's left has to be the inside. That's verses 14 through 16. We'll get to that in just a moment. Verse 13 provides the thesis for us, and James uses an intriguing term here. 
in the meekness of wisdom. What does that mean? Well, if we pause long enough and dig on it enough, we find that there are a couple of options. He, he writes in a way that, that gives us two options, or at least two options, but two primary options as to what he is actually meaning with that. The first one is kind of an objective statement, if you will. That means the meekness that causes or brings wisdom. The second one is a little more subjective, I guess, and it says the wisdom that produces meekness. So does meekness produce wisdom, or does wisdom produce meekness? And the answer is yes. It is brilliant writing. James writes this in a way that we cannot dismiss either of those two options. If we live with wisdom, it will produce meekness in our lives. But if we practice meekness, by extension, we are gaining wisdom. It's a both and, not an either or. So we probably should define those two terms very quickly, and I'm going to move on. Wisdom, we might say in this case, is seeing things through God's eyes. How do you see life? How do you view What's going on around you? I made some people really uncomfortable. I know I did on, uh, I think it was Wednesday night before I left. Might have been Sunday night. Either of those. We're doing minor prophets. And, well, you can't read those without getting uncomfortable if you're really paying attention. So I, I took, I'm pretty sure it was Wednesday night, and, and I took this idea. What is the thing in our world today, in our American society, that bothers you the most? And I got some, you know, pretty good answers, little church answers, you know, the, the safe answers. So I said, let me tell you one of the ones that bothers me the most. It's this whole di- idea of allowing a child to decide what their gender is going to be with parents not having any say in that. That kind of gets all over me, just to be honest with you. So how do we, how do we function in a way where we see things the way God sees things, that's wisdom. But meekness then is to be tamed by God. (laughs) A lot of Christians leave out the meekness part and they go all crusader rabbit on different social issues and there is no meekness in them. But both of those are things that God authors in our lives. How do we make all of that happen? James is saying, that's what you shoot for. And and again, verse 13, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Don't do nothing, but what you do, do what God would have you do, and do it in a spirit of weakness. That makes sense? Yeah, I didn't think it might. So let me see if I can put it a different way. Fundamentally here, James, now we're into the middle verses. James is drawing this contrast between different kinds of, quote, wisdom. So he talks about this wisdom that is from God. Verses 17 and 18, give us kind 
of what's, what goes with that. What, if you have a pack of wisdom that God's given you, what, what's inside the pack? And so verses 17 and 18 help you see that, and there's some cr- pretty critical things. First, pure, uh, peaceable. That's a big one because he mentions it again in verse 18. Gentle, open to reason. You mean I can't be hard-headed? No, I can be. You can't be. That is the idea behind many Christians and how they behave. Well, anyway, it's getting awfully quiet in here. You're hoping I'm going to run out of time, so let me keep moving some. Verses 13, 17, and 18 give us this idea of kingdom. So I'm going I'm to contrast now for the rest of the time. Kingdom with a capital K. That is God's kingdom. There's only one, and it's his. In this kingdom, who is king? God is king. You agree with that? Okay, remember you said it. The other side, this other kind of wisdom that he's talking about is kingdoms, small, lowercase k, with an N, excuse me, with an S on the back end of it. So in other words, the wisdom of God works to prevent, no, I mean, I don't want to say it that way. The, the wisdom of God works to foster kingdom, capital K, God's kingdom work. But the kingdoms that are verses 14 and six, through 16 in there, those kingdoms are selfishly motivated. They're driven by, I am the king. All right, let me make sure that I cast an even net over this whole thing. Those are the kings and the queens of counter kingdoms to the kingdom of God. And they're driven by selfish ambition, he says. Look again. An incredible statement. He says, but if you, bitter jeal- if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. I don't know how we skip over that verse so much in 21st century Christian life and teaching. Any kingdom, small k, any kingdom, small k, that stands against the kingdom of God cannot be tolerated. You believe that? Okay. You're painting yourself into quite a corner. It's the right corner. But boy, this opens up a world of interpretation in daily life. How do we do that? Especially in the life inside of a church or inside of an individual. So, let's move on and let me make a few applications here and let you get to Sunday school. And you can have preacher for lunch. Let me just say, I'm going to go back to verse 17 and 18, and we'll finish there. Verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace 
by those who make peace. God's kingdom is marked by peace. One of the names, one of the prophetic names of Jesus is Prince of Peace. They go together, this kingdom and peace. But one of the subversive, demonic, that's him talking, not me, one of the diversive and demonic hallmarks of kingdoms, small k, is that those kingdoms produce strife. You've heard me say, when king, excuse me, when kingdoms are threatened, kings go to war. You're not off the hook, ladies. That's true of queens also. So how, as you do this spiritual checkup in your own life, is your life marked by strife? Is it, is it possible that every time you turn around, it seems you got a problem with somebody? No takers. Of course that's possible. Not only is it possible, it's regular. If that's the case, maybe the problem is not with somebody else. Maybe you're the common denominator across the spectrum of those. Here's why I'm, I'm, I'm taking a hard stand on this, because the bottom line is that when, if we're going to do a spiritual evaluation of ourselves, this checkup, we cannot miss the fundamental part of our character. Every single one of us in here is subject to this, including myself, maybe especially myself, I don't know. But the, every one of us has at the very core of who we are a sin nature that by definition says, I am God. If you don't believe that, look across the world. Just, just bring it down to a manageable uh, palette for us to examine. Bring it down to just the borderlands area. Let's spread it out to the state of Texas. Let's go to the whole United States. What is the hallmark of our day? It is individualism that hammers anybody that disagrees with them. That is small k with an S on the end kind of wisdom demonic. And so every one of us has this root core part of who we are that has to be redeemed. You can't fix your sin problem if you're sitting there going, well, I know I have this problem, but you know, I would not be so hard-headed if all of these idiots around me would get it right and think like I do. I know of a guy one time who said, the world will be a better place if I could open up your head and pour my thoughts into your brain and then close it back up when the world would be a better place. You know what I call that? <clears throat> That's nuts. That's what that is. You know what would be best? Is if everyone had a heart transplant with a living God through his son, Jesus Christ. Richie quoted John 10, 10. The thief comes to steal, and kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you may have life that is abundant. 
That's life in his kingdom. That's not a life that we can create on our own. So your spiritual checkup is done, as far as I'm concerned this morning. But I hope that this message pushes you to consider your life. You may have made a profession of faith years ago and still live for your own kingdom's benefit. Where's Jesus in that? Where's peace in that? Where is the growth, the productivity of his kingdom? And if you're in here today and you've never heard that Jesus Christ is the solution for your selfish mess of a life, then I want you to know that promise that he made, I'll give you life that is more abundant than anything you can ever imagine. Let me put it in road trammelese for the day. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life that will blow your ever-loving mind. That's life in the kingdom. When Jesus said, make disciples, that's the kingdom life he had in mind. So where's Jesus in your life today? Invitation time is for you to get it in line with the King of Kings. If you don't know how to do that, I'll be down front. Love to pray with you. We have others who would do that. Let's pray. And so, Father, so much left unsaid, but enough has been said for us to do a personal evaluation. Where am I with you today? Am I fighting for my kingdom or the chosen kingdom of my life? Or am I working to further the kingdom of God? Is there a productivity element to this evaluation for me? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing and you come. I 
Pray. 